describes this being headed up or lead, led by what he describes as the devil. And if you've ever been a Christian for any length of time and you've tried to follow Jesus, try to live for God, you know that there's always a sense of pushback. There's a sense where it can be very challenging or very difficult. And that can come in the form of external, outward forms of persecution where people just simply don't like you. That may not be hugely the case here in America, though it may be to some degree. You may have family relationships where people think you're crazy or nuts or lost your mind because you're following Jesus. Or it may come in the form of just simple internal moral decisions that you are facing, that you're confronting with. Decisions, should I follow Jesus? Decisions, should I download porn? Decisions, should I be nice and forgive my neighbor? Decisions, should I simply hold a grudge and be angry with him for the rest of my life? These are decisions that, depending upon how you uh, choose to follow after those things, could actually bring great destruction, pain, hurt, brokenness, sabotage of shalom of God's goodness on your life, and bring about a, a sense where you feel distant from God, or based upon how you decide to follow those choices, can lead you to a place of greater flourishing, greater fruitfulness, greater uh, growth and grace and understanding, what we would call a holiness or sanctification. And all this, Paul says, is basically influenced by an unseen realm he calls the devil, the devil, spiritual warfare. So in summary, what we've been looking at over the past several months, or really in particular in the subject of spiritual warfare, is first of all been looking at the believer's warfare. So spiritual warfare as we call it. But over the past couple of weeks, we've been taking a look at more specifically the believer's wardrobe. So even though we are in a place where there is this pushback upon our walk with Jesus and our following Jesus and our as a community moving forward in what it looks like to embody the gospel by the way that we forgive each other, by the way that we love each other, by the way that we serve one another's needs, and we think about not just simply ourselves, but the needs of other people, even in Africa, even our neighbors, even our neighborhoods, the way that we think about those things can either bring healing or bring great damage. What Paul is saying is that when uh, corrupting influences threaten us, we don't have to give in to those things. We can be strong. We can find strength in God, by God's power, through what Paul describes as the Christian's wardrobe, or what we call the armor of God. So in summary, we looked at Paul describing like the belt of righteousness, the, breast, or the uh, breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, all of these things that Paul describes, the sword of the Spirit. We looked at that last week. But what we'll be taking a look at here this morning is really kind of the last, what some scholars, some scholars kind of divide and are divided over, you know, is this actually a spiritual armor, spiritual weapon, or is this not? Is this sort of the conclusion of all these things? At the end of the day, it's really quite frank with you, it doesn't really make any matter difference whatsoever. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is we need to hear what Paul is talking about and embody it, to live it, to take it seriously as to what Paul says. And it's really the subject of prayer. So what we'll do is we'll take a look at the subject of prayer today as Paul looks at it within the context, and we'll actually do this over the next two weeks. And I'll tell you why we'll do it in two weeks, uh, because there's a lot about prayer that I think, um, I don't want to assume that we all understand what prayer is. Uh, so we can talk about certain subjects in the Bible, like for example, pray. We can say and hear Paul's words where he says, now pray always in the Spirit. But I, what I don't want to do is I don't want to assume that we all understand what praying is is, or what Paul has in mind when he says praying, because some of us, the way Jesus is going to describe as we'll impact this in a second, Jesus actually basically points out that everybody prays, some people pray in a way that's destructive, that's actually not in alignment with 
uh, true believers of Jesus, followers, followers of God. Others pray in ways that are consistent with the heart and the mind of God. So I want to read the passage, and then we'll try to understand a little bit about what I think Paul has in mind, what the New Testament writers have in mind with regard to prayer. So in short, what we'll do is we'll try to demystify the subject of prayer. And the reality is that the idea of prayer oftentimes becomes very, I think, overly complicated. And I'm going to try to uncomplicate, as best as I can, the subject of prayer. So let's read the passage, beginning in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 through 21. Um, I'll just read. You guys can follow along. We have it up on the screen. Actually, 18 through 20. It says this, verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end, uh, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me, opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm in jail. I'm in prisoner right now. It's where Paul's writing from. He says, so pray for me that I might have the ability to boldly proclaim the mystery of this gospel, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So in short, again, I'll just give you a quick little teaser for what we'll be taking a look at next week. Um, Paul describes, first of all, in verses 18, uh, really just mainly verse 18 and then beyond that, but mainly verse 18, four alls that he emphasizes. One, he says, Pray all uh, with, at all times. So the idea is the frequency. How often should we be praying? So all time. Then he says all prayer and supplication. So these are various forms and various types of praying. Again, we'll look at all this next week. Um, and then he says with all perseverance. In other words, the opposite would be giving up, stopping, uh, falling short, um, tapering off. Paul says keep persevering all time, all the way until God answers Yes, no, or later. And then he says, for all the saints. The idea is, is that we're to pray for all those that are saints, all those that are followers of God. And then Paul's prayer request, basically for himself, is that he would have boldness. So again, the image or the picture is that Paul's in prison. So if you can think of it this way, Paul, if you've been following what's been going on in the news and you know that there are Christians actually that are actually in prison for their faith right now, um, not because they've committed a crime, not because they've done something evil, not because they've been moral, morally wrong or bad or something like that, but because they simply love Jesus, um, they're thrown in prison, some of which, as of last week, were beheaded. 21 of them were beheaded. Brothers in Christ, who are our brothers in Christ, were let out on a beach and they were beheaded simply because they followed Jesus. No other reason. They refused to bow their knee to Allah, and as a result of that, they endured torture uh, so that they would confess Allah, and when they chose not to confess Allah, they were taken out to a beach and brutally beheaded. Um, The fact of the matter is, here was Paul, writing from prison, not sure what was going to be the outcome, not sure if he was going to be beheaded, not sure if he was going to be murdered, he wasn't really sure as to what the outcome was, but Paul's prayer in prison was, because Pray for me, because I really want to have boldness to preach Jesus to those around me. It's not shocking. This is amazing. Like, this is Paul's prayer request. But we'll get into that more next week. But what I want to do right now is I want to focus specifically on the very first verse that we read, which is in verse 18, where Paul says, praying always in the Spirit. I just want to really focus on that one little verse, and we'll actually come back to this in the end, which is in the Spirit. What does Paul mean by that? And so... I think it's perhaps Paul had in mind the passage where when Jesus, it says uh, in the story of Jesus that he's 
with a Samaritan woman, and they're dialoguing about religion and whatnot. And then Jesus says, there'll come a time when those who follow me, the true followers of God, will worship and pray in spirit and in truth. In other words, I think the idea that is being conveyed here is that praying in the spirit is not necessarily praying in a foreign tongue. It could perhaps be that. I don't think that's what Paul is implying here. I think the idea specifically is praying in agreement with the mind of God. The spirit is, the word spirit, uh, when you read the word spirit, can again be sort of this mystical word. The word spirit literally in the Greek just simply means breath. Holy breath of God, if you would. It's like the Holy Spirit, the holy of God. Which that breath, by the way, we sang, is what gives us life. So when you, when you breathe in, you take in a deep breath, the life that you get from that is a gift from Yahweh. It's a gift from God. That breath, a holy breath, a holy spirit of God, when we pray in the spirit, we are actually saying and praying in ways that are in alignment with God. I think we'd all agree. Um, many of us, not all of us, have prayed at some point for things that are, compl- I mean, I think self-admittedly we'd be like, no, there's no way God's going to answer that because that's not in line with God. Like, there's no way. Like, I, I, I can't imagine God wanting me to have a Lamborghini. Like, may- maybe that's not what he has for me. Uh, I mean, there are things I'm sure that we have prayed for where we're like, I, I, I think I want this. I mean, we would all agree that there's a difference between needs and wants. You, you guys all agree? I mean, there are things that we, we desperately need, all right? People that we saw in the video, they need water. They, they also want water, I think, but they definitely need water. We don't necessarily need good water uh, because we want sparkling water, all right? We, we want sparkling water with a hint of lime or, or mango or whatever it is, right? We, we, there are things, there's a difference between what we need and what we want. And oftentimes what we pray for are not necessarily things that we, we really need, and so we pray for them desperately, and oftentimes we don't get them, and when we don't get them, they oftentimes, really all that does, it reveals the posture that we had in prayer all along. Um, so we'll get more to that in just a second. But the point that I would make is this, is that I think praying in the Spirit really just simply means praying in alignment or in agreement, or praying for something that's in alignment or agreement with the heart of God. I think that's what Paul's saying. So praying always in the Spirit. Pray in, with a heart that's in alignment with God. So that then raises the question, what, what is prayer, and why, why is this so important, and why should we take a few moments to really unpack and try to understand a little bit about what prayer is? Like I said, I don't want to assume that we all, when we talk about the word prayer, that we're all talking about the exact same thing. Because I think what we would notice is that um, we can talk about certain spiritual, religious-type concepts, but each of these spiritual, religious-type concepts actually are filled with different types of definitions. Does that make sense? So, for example, you can talk to somebody within a particular religious organization, and you can talk about Jesus. You can say, I like Jesus. And they can say, I like Jesus, too. And in your mind, you're like, oh, we're talking about the same Jesus. But you begin to ask some questions, like, tell me a little bit about your Jesus. And they might say, well, my Jesus is actually the stepbrother of of Lucifer. And you're like, oh, that's, I, I don't think my Jesus in the Bible actually is the stepbrother of Lucifer. So you begin to realize, like, like it's, a, it's actually a different Jesus. It's not the same Jesus. Um, and, and so when we talk about certain spiritual terms like prayer, I, I think it's important for us to really try to understand and not assume that we all have the exact same understanding as to what prayer is. So I want to uh, try to demystify what I would say what prayer is. And here's, here's why I think we've got to demystify a little bit about what prayer is. I'm going to even been brought up in a church or been around Christian culture long enough to 
feel or at least have the impression or think um, that prayer warriors or people that pray, that are really gifted in prayer, that they are sort of like super ninja range Christians. Like they're, they're the elite forces of Christendom. Like how many of you have ever felt like, like they're awesome, they're uber Christians, right? And then you look at yourself and you're like, I, I'm definitely not uber Christian. I'm not awesome. I can't barely even stay awake and pray without falling asleep all the time or without my mind thinking about having to check Facebook or with my mind wandering someplace else. I, obviously, I'm not a great prayer, so I might as well just never even try to attain to such a great feat the way, you know, super ninja Christian is because I can't do that. So what happens, what, we, what we've done is we've basically taken prayer and, and, and basically seen it as nothing more than this action for elite Christians. And most of us are well aware of the fact that we're not elite Christians and so we just don't even try praying. So what happens is that basically cultivates an attitude in of us in each of us, that basically says, why, why even pray? Why really even take prayer seriously? Because we'll never really amount to much. I'll, I'll, in other words, it's like, if you're going to go out and run a marathon, you've never run a marathon before, and people are like, you should go run a marathon. You've never, like, barely run a mile. Like, the thought of actually doing that is, is it's crazy. Like, there's no way I can do that because I barely even run a mile. But the point is, is that we just don't even try. And so prayer, we oftentimes treat the same way. So I want to try to demystify some of the false assumptions I think that we have around prayer. So we say things sometimes like this. We say things like, you know, prayer is, is powerful, or prayer uh, moves God, or prayer changes things. I mean, we have all these little phrases that we get, you know, put on T-shirts or placed onto coffee mugs and whatnot. And, uh, but the point of the matter is, is, is those phrases are actually, for one, really not even biblical. And I think what happens is we get those phrases, they become basically prayer, uh, the idea of prayer becomes all-encompassing and all-important. So what happens, I think phrases like that start out like this. Prayer is powerful, or prayer leads us to a powerful God, and this powerful God helps us. So what happens is that over time, that phrase gets truncated from prayer leads us to this powerful God to prayer is powerful. So what happens is prayer, the subject, the concept of prayer becomes an end in of itself rather than God. So prayer is not powerful. God's powerful. Does that make sense? Um, it's, it's God that's powerful. It's God that changes things. It's God that helps us. It's not prayer. Prayer is, is a vehicle. Prayer is simply going to God. So let me, let me break this down for you in, in another way. Think of a child, a child that goes to mom and dad, which, by the way, children are basically born and raised uh, to assume that mom and dad have the abilities and the goods to give to them for their life. So a child can go to mom, let's say two or three years old, and be like, mom, can I have a go-gurt? All right? Um, and the reason why a child's going to go to mom and say, mom, can I have a go-gurt, is because the child believes that mom has go-gurts to give. Uh, the child has faith, all right? When I say believe, the child has faith, confidence. That mom has plenty of, not only gets gogurts to give, but also has a heart to want to give gogurts. Does that make sense? So in other words, not only powerful, but also loving. Is that, is that all making sense? So a child actually needs to be trained to distrust mom. In other words, something unnatural happens, needs to happen to, to retrain a child to become suspicious of mom. 
So, so if a child that's two years old is like, I don't know if I should go to my mom because I'm not really even sure if she has gogurts to give, or I don't even know if my mom even cares because one time I asked her for a gogurt, she gave me a scorpion, I don't know what's going on, it's a dirty trick, it really hurt bad. But the point of the matter is, is that this child needs to be trained to unlearn, to, un- to not think rightly about mom. A child is born with, a, with this unbelievable ability to just trust mom and dad. I think it's part of the reason why Jesus says, unless you have faith like a child, you won't even get the kingdom of God. That there needs to be the sense where we just trust God to do something. So here's what I would say, is that when we tend to think of prayer as being like this, basically magic, that if we pray the right prayer, if we do the right order of sequence of events in prayer, then somehow we will rig the whole system, then God will have to respond to me. That's magic. That's not prayer. So this is all part of the demystifying I think we have to undo and retrain ourselves to think about what is prayer and really what's the focus because really the whole aim of prayer is to the same aim for a child to go to mom and dad. Prayer is just sort of the sequence of events that a child passes through by which it goes to mom and says, mom, can I have a go-gurt? That's, that's, if if I can say it this way, that is prayer. That's petitioning mom. It's birthed out of confidence and love and faith that mom not only has go-gurts to give, but also has this heart of love that wants to give go-gurts. So you guys following so far? It's all making sense? Lose anybody? Okay. So, I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper because here's a couple of things I've discovered. I want to read a passage, um, a quote from a guy named John Piper. Some of you guys know who he is. It's a great quote, and I'll read it because it kind of fits within the larger context of spiritual warfare and spiritual armor. Um, it's a great quote. It's, uh, it's not my all-time favorite, but I'll, I'll tell you why in a second here. Um, but it's a great quote nonetheless. It says, life is war. It's not all it is, but it is always that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily... a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it into a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. But what I love about this is because in a lot of ways, this is, this is kind of primarily the way prayer is oftentimes treated within the Western church. Like, we're like, Jesus, give me better Wi-Fi. Like, like I, I need better Wi-Fi, faster download speeds. Like, and other parts of the church are like, Lord Jesus, deliver, you know, my father from prison so he doesn't get beheaded by ISIS. A little bit of a difference there in, in the strategy and the aim and the focus of prayer. And again, not that God doesn't care about our creature comforts. I, I really want to underscore that God actually cares about your felt needs. He is not in any way, shape, or form apathetic to the felt needs that we have. He cares about you cares about all circumstances that are going through in your life. He cares about the grades that you might find yourself slipping to hold on to and maintain. He cares about the job that you have. He cares about the aches and the pains in your body. He cares about the little stresses that you have about your children, about your mom or dad. He cares about all of these things. He's a big enough God to care about all these things. But at the same time, I think we'd all agree that we, especially as a Westernized church, we tend to think of prayer as sort of like he describes. There's this little walkie-talkie, this intercom, I should say, to kind of contact God whenever we need a nice little blessing upon our lives to be added to us, as opposed to seeing ourselves engaged in the battle. The reason why I like that, this passage, because there's a lot of great things to say about it, but at the same time, I think it also tends to kind of 
uh, neglect the fact that prayer should also encompass and involve a sense of just enjoyment with God. And if prayer is always seen as nothing more than this heavy-duty, intense, wartime feel, in some ways it removes the sense of there are moments when it's, there's peace, that God brings shalom, where it's not, things are not, there's not heavy artillery, ar- artillery falling upon your head and everything's intense and crazy in your life. There are moments where God brings peace in your life, and prayer can be seen as nothing more than just an enjoyment with God. So even though I like this passage, there's some other, it's, it's not less than this, in other words, what I would say, it's far more than that. So next thing I want to take a look at is in a slide. It's going to break down some of this uh, in terms of demystifying prayer, because throughout the Bible, what you find is that there are exhortations to pray, all sorts of passages in the Bible that basically exhort us or encourage us to pray, tell us to pray. Um, we also see that there are examples of praying, all sorts of passages in the Bible that uh, refer to different prayers of people. Nehemiah uh, in the Old Testament prays. Job prays to God. Uh, we see Abraham praying. There's all sorts of amazing passages. Daniel prays. Great passages uh, referring to prayer. So if you're ever trying to understand a little bit about prayer, one of the best ways, I think, to do is just read some of the prayers of, of people within the Bible. It's, it's a great way to begin. Um, so there's examples of praying. We also see that there are elements of what prayer involves. We looked at a couple of them earlier. Prayer involves asking, like actually going to God. That's what the word uh, petition actually means or supplication means. It means going to somebody and then asking them for something. And that's, you know, prayer does involve that. Um, it involves faith. Again, we looked at the idea of faith. Um, it involves also devotion of time. In the book of Acts, it says that, and they devoted themselves to the teaching of the word of God and to prayer. So prayer also involves you or I basically carving out time to, to actually do it. It's like eating, right? I mean, all, all of us, we eat, um, and we carve out time to do it. Some of us, we eat on a run. Some of us sit down, actually have a meal with people, and we dialogue and talk, and we enjoy it. We can savor the food that we have. But in the same way, prayer is also something that we've, we've got to actually devote ourselves to to make it happen uh, really in a, in a way where it's robust and effective. Another thing that we see is that there are evidences of answered prayer. Um, we see Jesus give examples like in Luke chapter 9 verse 29 where he says that this kind was speaking of a demon to his disciples. He said, look, uh, the only way that you guys are going to be able to be effective against this demonic attack is by praying. So in other words, prayer in this context um, actually taps into God and then God then brings about a sense of power to help them in these moments. So that's an evidence of an answered prayer. Another one is Peter, uh, in this case, is actually in prison. The church goes to prayer. They seek God. They're asking God for uh, involvement and help. And then God comes in. God somehow miraculously sets Peter free. So these are some of the evidences of prayer. But here's one thing that you will actually not find in the Bible. You will actually not find any real definition of what prayer is. In other words, you'll find a chapter. You won't find a verse that says prayer is dot, 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 this. There's no passage in the Bible that actually says that, which I find this a little bit interesting. Because the only conclusion I can come up with is that the Bible just presupposes that we all pray. Which is a very interesting study because anthropologists have actually discovered this as well, that any culture, any civilization on planet Earth, throughout any range of time frame, people prayed. People pray all over the place. I mean, there's maybe a couple civilizations that they've been baffled by that there's not any real form of religious spirituality and there's some very remote areas in which that's actually been the case. But by and large, almost 
I don't even know percentage-wise, but I would say probably in the high 90s, almost every single ancient culture, civilization, ancient and modern, has been, to some degree, had some form or understanding of what prayer is. They did it, in other words. Does that make sense? Uh, there's been prayer that's just been presupposed in the Bible. But what we also find in the Bible is that it doesn't assume that we understand how to do it rightly. So here's what I mean by right versus wrong. Typically when God says something is good, what God typically means by good is that goodness leads to life and fruitfulness or flourishing. So for example, when God created all things, he looked at all creation and says it is good. This is God's affirmation that everything is symmetrical, everything is working together, everything is within harmony, everything is in accordance to God's plan and purposes. Everything is partnering together, everything is functioning and flowing together, and when things partner and function and flow together in accordance with God's will, life happens, fruitfulness takes place. It's when we basically remove ourselves from God's plan of how things are to flourish and be fruitful that we begin to find breakdown. We begin to find sabotage. We begin to find things don't flourish. Things are not life-giving. They actually become death-creating. So when I describe prayer as being good versus good prayer versus bad prayer, what I mean is prayer that's effective, that's life-giving, that creates life and Uh, all that God intends versus prayer that actually is not life-giving, that actually brings further death and brokenness upon our lives. This is a type of prayer that Jesus seems to point out that there are two different types of understanding or approaching prayer. And that's what I want to look at now and finish up here as we sort of refocus our understanding to really what I think prayer is in the Bible. So again, first, I really want to try to demystify our understanding of prayer, bring it down if you would, if it was like cookies in a jar that were on this really top shelf, only for the super elite people to actually reach them. I'm going to bring those cookies down to the bottom level so that we can all actually participate and enjoy and be a part of it and realize that that it's something that God anticipated and created for all of us. So finally, I want to look at this idea of really trying to refocus our understanding as to what prayer is. So I want to read Jesus's understanding or Jesus's words or teaching on what prayer is. So if you guys want, you can open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, we'll just take a look at what Jesus has to say. Because I don't want, again, I don't want to assume that we all understand what prayer is on the same level. So with that being said, um, what happens is Jesus' disciples, um, throughout Jesus' life, they see Jesus doing something that they're intrigued by. So they actually come to Jesus and they ask him, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? Which I think is kind of fascinating because Jesus did a lot of things. I mean, Jesus you know, converted, uh, you know, a few loaves of fish and a, or a few loaves of bread and a few little fish into this massive feast. Jesus walked on water. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus opened blind eyes. Jesus preached really well. I mean, he was a really gifted communicator, orator. Uh, but the one thing the disciples asked Jesus to teach him, teach him about, is not how to multiply, you know, loaves of bread and fish and not how to walk on water and not how to preach a really good message. But what they asked Jesus to show them is how to pray. So, so there's something about the way that Jesus prayed that captivated them, that intrigued them, that interests them, that they asked him. So what Jesus then does, he then he goes on and begins to unpack for them what praying looks like. He says, and when you pray, he's speaking to his disciples, so does that follow him? He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. 
So already what we begin to see here is that Jesus basically is affirming that everybody prays, some pray like his followers, some pray unlike his followers. What Jesus describes them as is hypocrites, depending on what translation you have. Some might say pagan, some might say unbeliever. Um, each of those words basically kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a word, we actually get the word eth- ethnic from. Um, it's, in some translations, probably the best way is to think of it as Gentiles, meaning non-Jews. But the concept also carries over into a paganistic, uh, religious type of a mindset that's actually incongruent with followers of God. So what Jesus is doing is basically making the distinction. He's saying that there are those who pray as if they are followers of me, and there are those who pray as if they are followers of, you know, the Gentiles or paganism or as unbelievers. Okay, so I want to just keep unpacking this. And then he says, for they, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners and that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who sees in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Next slide. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for the many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you have needed before you ask. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, holy is your name. So again, what Jesus is basically saying is that there are those, everyone who prays in this world, all who pray, everyone who pray, everyone prays, I should say, everyone prays in this world. Some pray in a way that leads to life, that leads to a way that, the way Paul says, is in the spirit, that is actually effective, that brings life and flourishing and fruitfulness in your life and through your life and the lives of other people in which you are free, you're liberated. And then there are other ways in which we can pray that are actually death-creating. What Jesus says is that there are those, like he describes here as the Gentiles, or in other translations, like I said, might be pagan. I'm just going to use the word pagan, not necessarily as a derogatory term, because you know, sometimes people love, sometimes Christian preachers love to like, whip out the, word, the P word, and you're like, they are pagan. I'm not saying it in that sense. I'm just saying pagan in a sense where unbelievers or Gentile. So what Jesus is doing is making a clear distinction. There are those who pray like they're followers of Jesus, and there are those who pray as if they're followers of the rest of this world. Does that make sense? So let's try to go through a couple of these to think about this. So there is a pagan way to pray that what Jesus describes, and he says they like to uh, heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll actually be heard by their many words. So what's going on here in the Greek is kind of an interesting thing I've heard some scholars describe, is that it's a description that there's a lot of words. Some translations might say vain babbling. There's a lot of words that are being thrown out. Some have identified this as basically being um, uh, empty words, words that really don't have a lot of value or a lot of meaning compared to who God is. And then the other thing that is perhaps part of this passage here that I think he's talking about is that it also leads to these empty phrases um, and many, many words oftentimes reciting, repeating these things over and over and over again uh, with the hope that they're going to get what they ask for. And again, really it boils down to setting up a system, rigging a system as to how to pray. So let me give you an example. A lot of this really boils down to how you view yourself in this world. How you view, how one views himself in this world. So take a look at this. There's three different ways I, I think we can look at this. A pagan or a hypocrite, or a Gentile, however you want to describe this, a non-believer, the way that Jesus simply uses the word. I'm just simply using the word the way Jesus does. A pagan or whoever, they basically see themselves 
uh, as irritating, unwanted, or as uninvited guests in God's world. So if you think of it this way, a Gentile or pagan, non-believer, sees this world, the system which we live in, as something that's governed by God or gods, whether goddesses, whoever, depending upon how or whatever type of system you come from, that this god or goddess needs to be appeased. He's really frustrated with me. I'm uninvited. I'm unwanted. I do a lot of things all the time that annoy him. And that, in other words, if you think of it this way, if your approach to God is that you are a squatter in his apartment complex, and he's a really grumpy, angry landlord, you will never feel fully free or at liberty to approach the landlord and ask him for blessings. Because you will always either be afraid of what his response will be, or if you, let's say, pay your rent, let's say your rent's like $10,000, right? Very high, but you pay $1,000. And you will go to him and be like, look, I've at least been paying $1,000. At least you can give me something. So you will either approach God with anger, frustration, rage even, because here you are doing what prayer teaches you to do. You pray hard, you pray long, you pray lots of words, you go to church, you read your Bible, you do all sorts of religious things, you keep yourselves morally pure, you do all these things hoping that somehow it will rig the system and make God keep you around for a little bit longer. Or maybe rig God or tilt God in such a way where then now God will respond to you. He'll give you what you're asking. But if he doesn't give you what you want, then you get really angry, frustrated. Now, why didn't you give me what I wanted? I prayed a lot. I, I, I went to church. I gave money away. I helped out at Life Water. I did the walk for a mile. I did all of these things, and you have not given me what I've asked you to do. It's because, really, you, you, you see God as a landlord, and you've been paying your rent. And you're really, really upset because he has not, according to your own perceptions, given you what you think you deserve. Another way is to oftentimes really feel this overwhelming sense of guilt because you know the opposite would be this. Here you are as a squatter in God's apartment complex, but you know you don't even have the money to pay rent. You're absolutely drop-dead poor. And you also know, you at least you assume, you think God's really angry with you, so you hide away from him. You don't want to be seen by him. If you hear him walking in the hallway, you're like, i got to hide from God because if he sees me, he actually might kick me out because you are well aware of the fact that you have not paid your dues there he might destroy you. But when you do pray, you pray feverishly, frantically, filled with anxiety, because you're like, God, I make all these promises to you, and I promise you I will go to church. I promise you I will read my Bible. I promise you I will do all these things. If you give me this job, if you give me a wife, if you give me a child, if you rescue my child, if you give me a house, if you give me all of these things, God, I promise you I will do all these things. So you pray filled with a sense of anxiety, and guilt, because you are praying like a pagan, a non-believer, a Gentile, the way Jesus describes, you are living in a world in which God occupies it, but you're not really sure of his intentions, and you are desperately afraid as to how you're going to be responded to. So you pray like this. You pray a lot. Do you know that a lot of even irreligious people pray? This is not about religious versus irreligious, because again, According to the Bible, everybody prays. But according to Jesus, some pray as if they're followers of Jesus, as if they have this robust understanding of God, which we'll get to in a second. Some pray like pagans or non-believers. 
In contrast to this, an atheist, or like a materialist, which is becoming more and more popular in today's culture, especially in the West, an atheist or materialist actually sees God as irritating, unwanted, and as an uninvited guest in their world. So a materialist or an atheist would say, this is my world. We occupy this. We brought up here after you know, many, 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 many millions of years of evolution, and, and this is our world. We possess this, and through our intelligence and our understanding, the things that we have, we are going to somehow at some point rid this world of God. But right now, we live in a world in which God still is here, but he's uninvited. We'd rather him not be here, and uh, uh, God's just sort of an ir- a source of irritation. The final is that a Christian is one that actually sees themselves, and this is, this is shocking, okay? So you just gotta, you, gotta, you gotta hear this and let it sink in, because the message, because this is what this is, this is a message of grace. The, the message that the Christian receives, that a Christian is one who sees themselves as a celebrated, wanted, and welcomed guest in God's world. And you might ask, well, well, how is that possible? How is it possible that God would accept anyone? Well, the answer is, is that by grace, we are saved through faith. That God saves, God rescues, God welcomes, God invites. And, and it's not just some sort of arbitrary feast that we go to where we are unknown. It's a table where we are known. This is the message of the good news, the gospel that is pronounced, that's proclaimed that you don't have to be anonymous, and that you don't have to pray to God like a pagan. See, this is why I would say the difference, the distinction between the way Jesus describes people that pray as if they're followers of Jesus, as opposed to people that pray as if they're followers of a rigged system, we call it paganism, unbelief, uh, Gentilism, whatever you want to call it. The, the, the difference is, is that one type of prayer basically prays and the outcome leads to this overwhelming sense of anger, frustration, because you're never getting from God what you think you deserve. Because really at the end of the day, God's not your greatest treasure. Things are. His gifts are. And as long as God's in compliance with you and giving you what you want, then you're happy. But the moment God may even say no then we get really angry because what we're really just demonstrating is that things are my true desire, not God. Things are what I really want, not God. And when God withholds things, I get frustrated. It's because I think I live in a world that belongs to God, but I'm really unwanted here. I'm never really certain of my place. I'm never really sure at my position at the table. I'm never really sure if does he really love me. I'm not certain of any of these things. The opposite would be, uh, again, another form of brokenness that kind of this leads to is this overwhelming sense of guilt that I already alluded to, that we feel as if because answers to my prayers are not coming, it's because I'm broken. It's because I deserve it, because something about me is so messed up and so undesirable. And Jesus says in his invitation, he says, really by way of an invitation, Pray as if you're a follower of me. And how does he teach us to pray? What he says in just those simple little phrase, those simple little words in that phrase, he says, pray, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. The distinction that Jesus says is that pagans pray as if they're unwanted guests in God's world and they're never really certain of their place, but followers of me pray knowing 
that in spite of who they are, they're actually welcomed to the table. They're given a spot. They're given a place. And it's, 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 it's given a place at a table where God not only has good gifts to give, but also has this massive heart by which to give them. He loves us. And that brings us to the conclusion of just thinking, like, how, how do we know this about God? How can we be confident this is really who God is? And this is where Jesus goes on throughout the rest of his life and to the point of the death on the cross where there's other passages in the New Testament that refer to this that say that God demonstrates his love in that while we are yet sinners, in other words, yet rebels, yet pagans praying in a paganistic type of a system through a paganistic type of a way, not really sure of where our place is, even when we are still lost and locked in that destructive, corrupted type of a scenario, God still demonstrated his love to us in that Jesus died for us. God gave us something that we don't deserve. He gave us a place at the table. We don't deserve it. How? What did it cost God to do that? See, this is, this is where it's so important to understand the importance of the cross, that it's the cross that basically it's where God pays for our brokenness. It's where God makes right that which was wrong. And this is where God then invites us, come, follow me. And when Paul then in closing says, pray always, what he's basically doing is an invitation to say, look, we are locked in a war. Yes, there's challenges. There are things that are constantly trying to combat against our understanding of who God is and trying to constantly undo all the good that God wants to do. And in the midst of that warfare, pray always. Come to a God that loves you. Ask him. Seek him. He can be found. Don't seek him like a pagan. Don't seek him as if somehow you've got to rig the system and based upon what you do and your effort and your actions, you will either be accepted or denied. Seek him on the basis because you are accepted. You are loved. And that he's a God that has good gifts to give and plenty of which. But he doesn't always answer prayers in our way. doesn't always do that. I guarantee you those 21 Christians prayed for their deliverance. I guarantee their family members, their wives, their children prayed for their deliverance. They didn't. Every one of them died. And so I, I, I really want to emphasize this because we live in this world, especially where we have this mentality within the Christian church in the West that says you just pray, you rig the system enough and somehow God will give you what you desire Everything you ask, if you ask it long enough and hard enough. But the fact of the matter is we have a God that really only gives us what's best for us. And we try to reconcile that. How can it be best for these guys to have been killed? We don't have all the answers to that. We don't know. But I guarantee you, on the minds of every single one of those guys before they died, was this understanding to die for Christ is better than to bend their knee to a false God. To die for Christ now, to say goodbye to their wife, to their children, to their family members now is better than to bend their knee to a false system that leads to brokenness, destruction, hurt. And I would suggest the same for all of us. And in closing, I want to invite, if you're here this morning, and let's say you're a Christian, meaning you follow Jesus, you've given your life to Christ, you are definitely a saved, but at the same time, you pray, let's say, like a pagan. 
meaning you have sort of this false understanding of God. You feel like God needs to be appeased. You feel like when you pray feverishly for something, if God doesn't give it to you, you are shaking your fist out of frustration because God has not given you what you wanted. The invitation for you is to, to turn from that. It's destructive. Do you see how it's destroying you? That anger, that rage, that frustration is actually corroding your ability to be joyful. Do you see that? Do you know that? Do you sense that? The call of the gospel is to be free from that, to be free from those false notions and to turn to the life-giving God. That's a good father that loves you. If you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian, you approach God purely on a basis of spirituality, one that perhaps no doubt has been handed down within culture at large, and yet at the same time, it doesn't lead to life. The, the call, the invitation for you is to turn from that. The Bible's word for that is actually in both cases is, is repent, to turn from those things, to turn to a, a better, more longer-lasting, more life-giving administration, kingdom, world, in which Jesus offers. So what I want to do in closing, I, I want us to spend a few moments to pray. What I want to do is we'll, we'll, all, we'll all sit up and we'll just kind of break up into little groups to pray. And I know some of you right now are kind of like, what? we got to pray? Um, this is church. We don't want to pray. And the fact of the matter is, is that um, because we are a church, we, we actually we, we do pray. And, and it's something that we do. And it may be a little bit discomforting for some of you because it may be something that you're not used to. Uh, you don't have to pray. That's totally fine. I don't want anybody to kind of be overwhelmed by that. And, but if you want to, that's fine. You can rise to that challenge. But what we'll do is we'll just kind of break up into little groups of threes, fives. If you're here this morning, and in that group, you don't want to pray. That's fine. You don't have to pray. Um, if you're one of those people that you look at your life and you say, that, that's me. I feel like I've approached God throughout my life in a way that's actually destructive. And I, and I want to change. I want to really, truly trust God today as a father. Not as a landlord. Not as a business transaction. But as a father who loves me. I want, I want to see God like that. Just, you can just say that in the group and have others just pray for you. And if that's your whole group, then you guys can just pray for each other like that. If all of you guys in your group are all Christians um, and you're all doing really good and you already kind of have a good understanding of what prayer is and that's totally fine. I realize that probably some of you, this may be secondary stuff. You may have already heard this before. Um, that's fine too. Then maybe you can just pray for the things that we've been talking about before the past several weeks with regard to our building. We, you know, uh, we mentioned this before. We have to move by around June and uh, they want to sell this building and want to raise our rent, so we're realizing we've got to find another place to move. So we're asking you guys to please pray that God would direct and guide us to a place. So you can just pray for that, pray that God would lead and guide, pray that God would just continue to give direction, that God would give wisdom to our leadership, our elders, to make decisions and to steward everything that we have well. Um, and then, yeah, you guys can pray like that. And if you are in a group that nobody wants to pray and you're all uncomfortable like that, you guys can just get to know each other and talk and say hi. So count of three. We'll all stand up. We'll have the worship team come on up, and then they'll, they'll play, and we'll close this off. So one, two, three. Go for it. Meet someone. Turn around. Pray. Spend a few moments.